0: Okay, so today's passage is Acts 27 and following. The handout only has Acts chapter 27, because I actually doubt we're going to get through the entire chapter, but who knows, we might be surprised. What we have uh, are dealing with here started where I ended off was three weeks ago with the trial of Paul before Festus and Agrippa and him declaring his need to appeal to Caesar. And of course, Festus said then, to Caesar you shall go. This begins the very lengthy section of Acts of the voyage and the shipwreck of St. Paul. Now, this particular passage is interesting because it's a travel log, which is why I put the map on the front of your handout, because you need to be referring to this map the entire time we're talking, because I'm going to rattle off geography and city names and all sorts of other wonderful fascinating trivia that will not win you a game of Trivial Pursuit. Um, But it's critical to your understanding of what's going on here. Uh, The passage itself, looks like we have one person here. Here we go. Oh, they already got it to you, good for for you. All right, thank you. Um, There's a modern parallel to this journey and it was turned into a television show called Gilligan's Island. <laughs> and so as a introduction to this passage, I would like to perform for you. <laughs> the, the song. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip. No, it's not the one you're thinking of. It's a totally different ship. <laughs> a totally different ship. Well, Paul set sail from the shore one day, a prisoner bound in chains. To Rome he go before Caesar, God's doctrine to proclaim, God's doctrine to proclaim. A wind of hurricane force swept down, for 14 days it raged. Fear not, said Paul to the prisoners and crew, you all shall be saved, you all shall be saved. Just before dawn on the fourteenth day, all were still alive. Paul said to them, Take some food, you need it to survive, you need it to survive. When daylight came, the ship ran aground, they couldn't take much more. But all reached land, safe and sound, rescued by the Lord, rescued by the Lord. Paul made it to Rome and began to preach forever in custody. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. His faith had set him free. His faith had set him free. So join us here each week, my friends. More tales of faith you'll hear like Noah and Abraham the disciples and Moses too. And remember that, through every trial, God is there for you. (laughs) Oh, I didn't write this. No, I'm not gonna give credit. I will give credit to the Association of Lutheran Resource Centers at feautor.org. Which is no longer being managed, and I could not find out who wrote it. Oh. I tried my best. I spent probably an hour <laughs> digging into that silly site that is the index doesn't work, nothing works, but I did find it. <laughs> and thank you, Mr. Google. Aren't That's we all blessed? Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> you, yeah. I would like to see that. On Sunday morning, as one of the special songs. <laughs> if, if Pastor Jim Effers preaches an act, you're going to have to give him these lyrics and go, maybe? <laughs> See what happens. Anyway, I just thought I'd give a little levity to the morning. <clears throat> this particular passage is really quite fascinating on many levels. As Thomas Walker wrote, he says, there is no such detailed record of the working of an ancient ship in the whole of classical literature. James Smith, who actually wrote this particular book called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. Yes, I did look through almost this entire book. Was written in 1848 originally. This fella was a lawyer and and a Greek scholar And he decided to travel the travels of Paul and journal it. And he even, there's maps in here where he took soundings in the various bays to find out how deep the water was, at least in 1848. Uh, Obviously, it would be a little bit different back in Paul's day. Um, But he wrote, he says, no sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor. No man, not a sailor, could have written this narrative unless it was from actual observation. So think of it, you've got Luke writing this because this passage becomes a we passage in the very first verse. And then it was decided that we should sail for Italy, which means Luke was with them. And you have a medical doctor writing about sailing He wouldn't know the details. He was probably asking, what is going on? What are we doing? And then he wrote about it. Uh, Richard Longenecker says it's one of the most vivid pieces of descriptive writing in the entire Bible. Um, That may be hyperbole, but it's awful close when you think of the significant details that are rendered in here. Now, there's a big question. Why would Luke devote 60 verses to this one story? 60. I mean, it's a chapter and a half. It, is, it dominates the ending of Acts. It's almost as if everything is moving to this conclusion. If you're writing a novel, you want the big you know, explosion at the end where everybody's reading what's happening. I don't have an answer for that, other than that it's here, and it's for us to study, and it's for us to look at. There has to be some reason other than just a simple travelogue. The danger is over-spiritualizing it. And, you know, there's a couple points that I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pick out that where people have gotten a little off, off the, uh, the Bible in- interpretation train in their work on his, on this. Now, in Acts, there are at least 11 or 12 accounts of Paul traveling somewhere by sea, starting all the way back in chapter nine. All told, if we combine the estimated distances, Paul traveled over 3,000 miles on the sea over his ministry period, covering three decades. That's the difference between what? LA and New York. That's a long way in a rowboat. These were not steamers. These are not frigates. These were not these amazing pieces of nautical architecture. These were galleons probably created by Phoenicians and Egyptians to navigate the coastal waters of the Mediterranean Sea. We see pictures of big boats and we think of the ocean faring liners. They didn't have that. That's why if you ever do the study of uh, Columbus's voyage over to the New World how extraordinary that truly was because they did not have a motor to get across the ocean they had to either row or know how to sail appropriately. Also, we think about Paul's history. About five years earlier than this, he wrote in 2 Corinthians 11.25, quote, three times I was shipwrecked and for a night and a day I was adrift at sea. Eh, Just a little footnote to my life. Wait, tell me more. Well he didn't. He just simply made a statement of fact. I've had a lot of difficulties and that was in a litany of all the sufferings he had for Christ. But he just kind of casually tossed off the fact that he was adrift at sea for a day and a night. And then we come to this passage. So obviously Paul is a veteran traveler I have to think about the veteran airplane travelers. Uh, I wouldn't call myself one necessarily by comparison. I mean I, I know people who are in the million mile club who have flown a million airline miles and back in the day American Airlines would grant these people special treatment for life once they hit that level. They were always in first class, always getting primary um, um, coverage and, and uh, best best travel options just because they flew so much. Uh, just, this is one of my fun little stories I like to tell but there was one time again veteran quote-unquote veteran traveler and I sit down this particular time I was in an uh, in, in, uh, an aisle seat and I sat down kind of went through my routine Because I have routine, you know, get the stuff in the front pocket, make sure the air is right, you know. And I noticed the guy at the window, he's looking at me, kind of, and he goes, am I supposed to be doing something? (laughs) And I looked at him and I realized he thought I was prepping the plane. (laughs) and I said we well, see that button there don't press that one because then the flight attendant will show up that's the one for your light that's the one for your air and if you need to you know you can lower your shutters and then this is how you adjust your seat and I said first time he goes yeah he was in his 40s I went, okay you know and I thought okay this guy's gonna be ter- a terrified flyer well there was no one in the middle seat and when we began taking off <laughs> He's gripping the sides of the chair and he starts shouting, my truck can't do this. He's <laughs> <laughs> pressing his back and we take off and I'm going, okay, first time experience, wow. I got, to, I got to see it visually. So imagine this particular scenario of a veteran traveler like Paul. Knowing he's gonna go to, go to Rome, this is probably gonna take know a couple weeks maybe a little longer this is not a short trip and they know that going into it and if you start right in the very beginning and look at the details verse one it was decided that we would sail for Italy they delivered Paul and some other prisoners so he wasn't one of the only prisoners in the group were they chained together probably not but they may have been um, let's just say restrained in some manner so they can just dive off the boat and swim to shore and escape. To a centurion of the Gustin cohort named Julius, the fact that Julius is named must have some significance partly because he's referred to once later. Uh, there are some who think that he must have been a um, a former slave who became a freedman and took the name of Julius for Julius Caesar because <clears throat> that would not have necessarily been a common name. Verse 2 and embarking on a ship in this wonderful word that we see here, Adramitium, all we know is that Adramitium is a town, if you look at your map, right in the dead center of go up north to the Aegean Sea see that you find the Aegean Sea and look at Troas and Oso and Mytilene well Adramitium is in that area but it's so small it doesn't get a dot it is a very tiny town but obviously this boat originated from that town and is in Caesarea my guess is that it's probably a merchant ship. So it's going from its home to Caesarea, drops off its stuff, and now it's gonna go back home. And the soldiers hire this ship to take them on at least part of the way on their voyage. And it was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, Asia, meaning Turkey, modern day Turkey. We put out to sea, and by the way, a ship of that size, this wasn't a super large one, because they stay close to shore. They stay within visual distance of the shore. They don't, get, they don't let the, uh, the, uh, the shore get beyond the horizon. Now, I'm not a sailor, so I don't know this detail. I should have looked it up. Should have gone on one of my rabbit trails. How far is the horizon when you're at sea? How many miles? Anybody, any idea? No sailors in the group? Oh, that's right, it's Arizona. <laughs> 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 and if you're go, going boating at Lake Pleasant, all you see is white chalk you know, around your, the, the, the basin. Um, I think it's like 10 miles, so it's not that far off the shore. It might even be less than that, but they just don't get too far af- afield so that they can navigate their way in case a storm comes up. And it says they're accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. You should have at least an echo of familiarity with Aristarchus. Anybody want to help me remember who he was? Who was this guy? Was he involved in the riot? He was. He was the one in Ephesus that was arrested by the town people of Uh, Ephesus and taken into the theater and threatened to kill him. They didn't couldn't get Paul so they got his right hand. Aristarchus was Greek so he's from Macedonia. He is not a Jew. Remember that as well. Second time Aristarchus got wrapped into something when Paul was arrested in the Temple Mount what was one of the things he was accused of he was accused of taking a Greek into the temple area Aristarchus so he's people would see him Aristarchus with Paul and assumed oh he must have taken him into the temple court well he didn't Paul knew better than that but he was a Greek who had become a God-fearer, become a follower of the way, had become a Christian and was a companion of Paul. Those are the two main places where we find his name but we also find his name in Colossians 4 chapter 10 identified as a fellow prisoner which meant when they got to Rome Aristarchus was thrown in jail with Paul. It makes you wonder was Aristarchus in jail with Paul in Caesarea for the last two years? We don't know. But he's on this ship with Luke. Luke was not arrested. Aristarchus may have been held because of the quote-unquote involvement in the temple in Jerusalem. And they wanted to keep him out of creating a mess. We don't know. We have absolutely no idea. Uh, he's also mentioned in Philemon in, in chapter 1 verse 24 as a uh, as another person in the, in, in the group that they're all together. You, you know, it's one of those fun things you would just want to know more. I mean, oh, can't we just find a, a biography, A Wikipedia entry, I mean something Find out who this guy was. There's even some who speculate that he was Paul's slave. And that's taking a little too far, yes. but you might run into that in some of your reading because it was actually an old idea that was, uh, became very popular in the 1800s among scholastic circles, which is why his name was not prominent but was connected on a regular basis. But why he would be thrown in jail would make no sense. So there was something about him that was special. Anyway, we've gotten all the way to verse two. <clears throat> yeah. In any of your reading, did you ever come across the, the finances of the trip? I mean, Paul, who has been a prisoner, so would he be paid? Uh, the trip is paid for by the government. But what about Luke? Uh, did anybody ever? No, no. It's never been speculated on. Okay. How did they finance? How did Luke finance the trip? Because he probably bought tickets, you know, maybe on you know, Expedia. There was a, spe- there was a special discount, frequent—that's frequent sea flyer miles, uh, something like that. But no, there's no indication. And yet there had to be something because this would not have been a free ride. I wonder when he trained the service of physician I can't hear you. Uh, that's possible, too. Yeah. Or, or how about Theophilus? Theophilus. I mean, it seems like he's been sent out. Possibly. The There's all, sort, all sorts of speculation of these connectivity because Luke did write to Theophilus the book of Luke and Acts. So we have this, maybe there was a benefactor or a patron of some sort. So it says the next day, we put in at Sidon. Well, you look at your map, you can see the first dots going from Caesarea to Sidon. That's 67 miles. Make a note of that, because 67 miles is one, in one day is really fast for these times. A typical boat on a good day, a normal day, might make 30 miles. So obviously there was a good wind. They were able to tack properly. There was nothing to hold them back. But they got 67 miles in a day. Now, is the day 24 hours? Is the day 12 hours? We don't know. But just simply saying the next day we pull into Sidon. And if you remember, Tyre and Sidon are obviously and regularly put together in Scripture as, uh, because they're so close to each other. But they were the two main ports of Phoenicia they were constantly vying for prominence in that in that era and it says Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for huh in other words Julius didn't want to feed him and said why don't you go and get lunch with your buddies over at McDonald's you know let them take care of you for the day but did he have a guard with him probably so that he wouldn't escape but he was just you know we're, we're putting up in port we're probably having to take on new passengers and they're offloading the ship of the cargo from Caesarea into Sidon and bringing on new cargo it's going to take a day or two for us to get all that together verse 4 putting out to sea from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us Now if you see your dotted line going from Tyre over to Myra, it goes up north and goes on the lee side. Now the lee side in apparently, I'm not a sailor, but apparently that means the left side of the boat. Not the island's left side, the boat's left side. So as they're traveling west, they can see Cyprus off to the left side, the lee side. That is to protect themselves from winds in the open sea on the south side of the island. This is a typical route, especially if you're going to Asia. You're not gonna go around Cyprus. There are other ports that you can stop at. This particular ship wasn't going to stop at the other ports, it was on its way to Myra. When they had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Now you can see the words Cicil- Cilicia right above the, word, the name Tarsus, the town of Tarsus where Paul was from originally. That's the province. <clears throat> the word Pamphylia is not on the map that I've given you. But it would be under the word Derby if you had to you had to add it in there you can. And they get to Myra. It has taken approximately from, if we look at the data, approximately 15 days to get here. Because this is 450 miles and not as a crow flies. So it's a meandering route. This takes a while. Again, remember, they're not moving at 60 miles a day. They're moving at a fairly lumbering pace because they're dependent on the winds. They don't have the best technology for sailing. It was the best at the time. Or maybe they had a used Yugo of a ship. I mean, it could have been some old clunker, but it was the one that was available. And they're on their way to Myra. Now, Myra is a little interesting from a historical standpoint. Fast forward 300 years and you have the Council of Nicaea. The famous Nicene Creed is created in the Council of Nicaea. And there is a a roster of those who attended that, the bishops. And there was a bishop of Myra. At the Council of Nicaea by the name of Nicholas. Saint Nicholas, Saint Nick, the one that all of the mythology and whatnot is wrapped around the Bishop of Myra, Nicholas of Myra, and he's the one who according to um, um, made-up theories or whatever. He's the one who slapped Arius during the council at Nicaea because he got so mad at him. Yeah. yeah. So it's probably mythological, but it makes for a good story. So that Myra is a, becomes a hub of Christianity. Today, that town is almost vacant. Um, in fact, um, James Smith in this little book talks about Myra when he visited it as an empty wasteland other than a massive amphitheater. So the town was abandoned. Probably the harbor ended up collapsing or became f- full of silt. And so it was no longer good for, uh, for, uh, for the ships. But back then, it was still very viable. All right, verse six. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Now, a lot of conversations about this particular ship. What does it look like? How big was it? It's from Alexandria, which is in Egypt. We do know that on this ship, according to verse 37, there was 276 souls on this ship. So let's take 270 of us. This around 20 in this room. Let's multiply that by 15. Maybe take everyone that was in church this morning, kids, families, everything, jam them into this room. Okay, let's see, we, we go by ceiling tiles. This room is what, approximately 20 feet, this way, maybe 30 feet this way, approximately. Alright, so let's take this room, add the one on the other end, add the one on the other end, and we've got about 60 feet. Could we fit 276 people in this room? Mm -hmm. Sure. Standing, Mm -hmm. try to feed them, try to have them sleeping. So, ships in this era, the largest ones are around 150 feet long. So, that would be a double the length and probably this wide. That's a pretty big boat, for lack of a better co- you know, comparison, and 276 people would fit. The, those that point at that number and say, it's way too many, we never have that many people in a, in a boat. Well, Josephus, who lived at this time, talked about being on a ship with 600 passengers. So it was not that unusual. However, don't forget, take your mind out of Revolutionary War ships or Civil War ships. Go back 2,000 years to these slapped together, nailed together things with not the best technology and didn't have deep drafts and then put tons of grain on the ship in addition to 276 people this boat is fine it's gonna do fine unless it gets a little stormy (laughs) then it's not gonna do well so they found a ship from Alexandria, put us on board. We sailed slowly. I love that little, little, little tidbit. It's like Luke is going, come on. you I can walk faster than this. They sailed slowly for a number of days. And arrived with difficulty. Key off of these tiny little words in this verse. It was a slow go, and they arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And you can see, Snidus is to the west of Myra, right on the coast. Right on the coast before, if you turn north, you go up to Ephesus and you're inside the Aegean Sea. The wind would not allow us to go further. They could not turn north. The wind was against them. And you're going, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Why didn't you just just hug the coast? Well, if you're five or six miles off the coast, and the wind's picking up, you can't do a whole lot. Now, as a sailor, you can tack, you know, kind of going to the left, to the right, to the left and and sail into the wind but it takes forever and if the wind is really strong there's nothing you can do you are going to get blown over it will tip the boat over if the wind is strong enough so you just turn around and let it push you and you can get to Crete We sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Salmone, if you were to put a little X on the very eastern tip of Crete, that's where Salmone is. Just, you can just put a little X there. That's where they were going. And they had to pass under to the south side of the island to avoid the big winds that were pushing them. So if they had stayed on the northern side of Crete, they would have been pushed into the island and probably shipwrecked. So they go under it, they pass it, and go under. Uh, it says, verse eight, coasting along with difficulty, same word as in verse seven, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the, sea, the city of Lycia. Um, so last time when they passed the Lee of Cyprus, it was on their left, Right. but here on the map it looks like it's on the right. When they got there, they then went on the right side, but they were passing, it's like they came down to it and it's on their left and they realized they need to go around. So So that little detail, (laughs) yeah, that little, yeah, they were kind of doing s-shape, probably like a skateboarder, you know, kind of moving around. I picked up that same problem But it doesn't make sense because we know where Fair Havens and Lycia are and they're on the south side of the island. So in other words, they probably saw Crete off their lee side and then realized they needed to turn and they did. Could they have come at it from the north you think and moved around? They would have been thrown into Crete on the northern shores. They would have been pushed right into it because if it was pushing them that hard and they couldn't turn north, they are literally going from Snidus to Crete over many days, and it doesn't say how many days. By the way, the distance from Myra to Fairhaven's is 370 miles. So this is another long distance, many days. We don't know if it was a week, 10 days, 12 days, 15. We have no idea. They've been at sea for quite a while. Fair Havens was known as a good anchorage, but not a place that had an extended stay hotel. You couldn't really stay there. Why? They didn't just say, well, let's just go over Lesia, which they could have, but instead they wanted to keep going. Verse 9, For such time passed, and the voyage was now dangerous. Like it wasn't dangerous before. But it was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Now, you have to go, what is he talking about? Well, let's break that down a little bit. The fast is the Day of Atonement at this time of year. So, we can can actually nail this down, get my charts out. In 59 AD, which is when this was happening, the Day of Atonement began on October 5th. This verse says the fast is over. I don't remember, I didn't know those things, I didn't look up, and that detail is not Stuck with me, but how many days is the Day of Atonement fast? Anybody? Ten, just ten. the one day. You saying ten? Oh, I'm sorry. I between Rosh Hashanah and It's just one day. Okay, so we have a kind of a time stamp of at least one day, and we know that would be October fifth. So why is that important? Well, this little chart, which Paul knows because he's a veteran traveler. He's been on American Airlines many times. It's danger to travel between March 11th and May 14th. Okay? Don't we have dates for the monsoon season now? And they've changed since... I've lived here in 40 years, the date keeps changing of when it starts or ends, whatever that means. And of course, the rain never obeys. (laughs) We get these monsoons after the monsoon season is over. So let's think about Florida. When is the hurricane season? Well, it's now. But when did it start? Late Late September, late August, September? and lasts till around November, approximately. You kind of, because people are saying, oh my goodness, you know, climate change. There's hurricanes. You know, there's been hurricanes in Florida every stinking year, as long as I've been alive. Now, granted, some of them are a little more violent than others, and they have different directions, but still, (laughs) it's are saying, we've never seen a hurricane. Really, you've never lived in Florida, okay. The best time to travel is between May 15th and September 15th. That's the best time. Based on our current calculations, they left Caesarea in the middle of this period. It's now past October 5th. What does that mean? Danger travel. is from september 16th to november 10th doesn't that sound like hurricane season and if you think of the latitude and longitude line tucson is the same latitude line as jerusalem identical place prescott's the same latitude line as nazareth by the way in case you're curious So if you go up north to this area, and you start going across the United States, you're in the middle of Tornado Alley. In Oklahoma, Nebraska, Wyoming, all those areas, and you look at this weather pattern, add in a Mediterranean Sea into Oklahoma, and you end up with this. You're not gonna go traveling in the Mediterranean Sea. You can, but it's dangerous. And then no travel from November 11th to March 10th. That's why they were talking about wintering. In other words, you don't go out. How many times you want to tell, tell people, yeah, come visit, come visit us here in Phoenix. Not in August, not in July, you know. If you're not used to it, you might not have You know, the best time when you burn your hands on the sidewalk. Um, So the fast is already over. They're in the midst of this, and Paul advises them in verse 10. And the word advised in the Greek for the ESV is actually admonish, or to advise them strongly, or to exhort. Sirs. I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. And the centurion, and the pilot, who's the helmsman, and the owner, which is the captain, all turned at once and looked at Paul and went, who who, who are you again? You're the guy in chains. You know, be quiet you don't know what you're talking about. Now, they may not have actually said that, but the text kind of gives that impression because it says, verse 11, the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship, meaning the helmsman, and it's literally the word to govern. That's what the pilot is. They're the person who basically drives the boat and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor of fair havens was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that they could reach Phoenix. Now that means they would cross the entire Atlantic Ocean, get off Florida, come across on a train I guess or the I-10 and then come and here we are. Who knew that the Phoenix is actually in the Bible? There it is, right there. You can tell people that we're a biblical city. Well, maybe not. Anyway, there's obviously a town at the end of Crete called Phoenix, and they're only going from Fair Havens to Phoenix. That's maybe 30 miles, maybe 40. That isn't a long trip. They could probably get it there in a day or two, even if they crawled slowly. And that particular harbor had a a northwest and a southwest um, let's just call them natural cove which protects boats from the winds of the Mediterranean and you could harbor a ship there for the winter. Verse 13 And when the south wind blew gently ah, they'd taken off See, perfect decision, we're doing fine. And supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land. Okay, the detail here, fascinating. On Crete is a mountain called Ida. Mount Ida is 8,000 feet high. It's a mile and a half high mountain, which means there's probably snow on the top of it. And the winds come off of that mountain from the north, sweep down, and are like a gale force, anything along the southern coast. And that's what's happened here. The word temptuous, which I think is interesting. The, um, uh, the ESV would translate this word this way. It's the Greek word tuphonikos or typhoon. It's where we get our word typhoon from. Now there's hurricanes in the Pacific. There's typhoons in the Atlantic. They're the same thing. We just give them different names. I didn't know there were typhoons in the Mediterranean, but they call them nor'easters. <laughs> that's, that's what they call them, even to this day. And that's a combination of various words. In some translations, they'll actually use the Greek word there, which is uroquilo, which means southwest, southeast wind and a wave, a combination of the two. It struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Again, get your picture in your mind of what's happening on this big boat. The wind comes pushing at them, they had their sails open, and they're moving along, you know, they're tacking, doing okay, and suddenly they can't turn into the wind. To to go towards shore because it's blowing the sails the other direction. They might have had rowers; they're rowing furiously, but they're just kind of staying in place. Have you ever been on any of you ever been on a boat with when the waves get aggressive? Anybody? What's it like? How big were the waves? seven foot tall so that's like a little under the height of the ceiling because these ceilings see this is eight feet so a wave this big right. my personal experience was in Alaska we're on a ferry so this is a ferry near Valdez we're going from one point to the next but you had to go out into an open an open area to get to the next point point. and part of the tourist thing was to go near a Glacier and they would blow the horn of the uh, at the glacier and hope the sound would crack the ice and you'd get the wad, The ice come down. It's all very cool But you're out in the middle of this and Suddenly the sky got very dark. The wind started whipping up and the waves 8, 10, 12 feet on this little boat we're out in the middle, and you can you can hear the engines, and we're just kind of like going nowhere, and it's like this. Everybody's getting sick. It was horrible. My dad says, "Son, come on, right, let's go out to the outside where you can get the fresh air in your face, and you it takes the seasickness away with the brisk air." And he goes, I gotta show you something. So we went down into the bowels of this ship where the, all the cars are stored. And there was a woman there. She was our Grandma Flurry. Grandma Flurry was a family friend who helped, came to my dad's help when he was in the army way back in World War II. And had become family friends to the points that we would call them Grandma and Grandpa Flurry, but they're not related. And they were with us on this trip. The front end of this, the basement of this ship was open to the sea. So all the cars are chained down and the cars are going up to the top of their suspension and wow. you walk in and there's like all these cars and and he goes, look, in the front of that boat is Grandma Flurry. is standing there like a sumo wrestler with her hands on her hips and just bouncing to the waves. And I kind of, you know, I'm holding on to this side. I'm this little kid and my dad's saying, don't get too close. You might go overboard. Grandma Flory's not. She's not holding on to anything. I'm waiting for her to get launched. And she says, ah, this is nothing. This is brisk. Reminds me of my good old days of sailing. And it's just like, oh, <laughs> That's a veteran sailor, and when I look at this passage, when they say if the plane that you're on is starting to have turbulence, look at the flight attendants. If the flight attendants are getting a little nervous, it's time to get nervous. But if they're still handing out drinks, going, "Oh, sorry, oh, didn't mean to spill that on you," and they keep going, it's okay. It's just a little turbulence. If it's going to get bad, they'll, they're very careful about this. But I will never forget that picture of Grandma Flurry, almost being tossed out into the ocean in Alaska and thinking it's nothing. Here we are, we've got a typhoon, probably six, eight, ten-foot waves that are such they cannot turn the boat into the wind. So they turn it away and it says they were driven along and running under the lee of a small island called Caudia, which you see on your map, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Well what is the ship's boat? I thought we were on a boat. The ship's boat was a small let's call it a dinghy it was probably a boat that would hold 12-15 people that they towed along behind that when they would anchor off of the shore they would use that to get into the port if they couldn't actually dock. So they always had it but it was like this if you've ever driven a car with a trailer and if the trailer is tall and starts getting hit by the wind suddenly your driving becomes a little more difficult because that stupid thing in the back That's pulling on you to try to blow you off the road. That dinghy was a problem. And so they secured it by pulling it in, lifting it up, and putting it inside their own boat and secured it. That's what this means. They hoisted it up and then used supports to undergird the ship. Again, getting into the Greek, getting into the background, this is something called frapping. F-r-a-p-p-i-n-g. Frapping was a very ancient way of securing the boards that made up the ship. They would run cable under the ship and then tighten them. I don't know how to describe it other than to say, imagine I'm you need to secure me, and you get duct tape, and you wrap me around, and then you wrap me around, and you wrap me around, and I can't move because I'm secured. That's what they're doing, but it wasn't duct tape. I'm just trying to imagine how in the world they got those cables under the ship. Were they already preset? Or did somebody dive and then carry it under the ship and hand it up, pull it up, and then do it again? There's got to be some technique, which I didn't want to get too far in the rabbit hole of what frapping is. But they're trying to secure the ship so it won't take on water so rapidly. Then fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear. Now, here's, again, you don't see Sirtis on your map. But I had to look it up. Where is syrtis syrtis is in Libya. Oh. They are really afraid of this weather. It's pushing in the lo- along to the point after they got away from the island of Cauda, K- they had no idea where they were. They couldn't see land anymore. Mm-hmm. And the there are two very well-known sandbar uh, graveyards of ships in syrtis at that time, and all of the all sailors in the Mediterranean were f- uh, totally afraid of getting close to that graveyard because they knew you get that close, suddenly you're out in the middle of the ocean and you hit a sandbar and you're you're done. Your ho- your your boat is going to be crushed. And you don't know where they are because no one had mapped them. It was just known as this graveyard. So it's mentioned here, but it's 300 miles away. But they don't know where they are. If you've ever been driving on the I-10 between Tucson and Phoenix, and a big dust storm comes along, and you have to pull over because you cannot see beyond the hood of your car. You can't see your headlights. They say pull over to the side, turn your car off, because if you have brake lights on, the car behind you will think you're driving and will run you over. So pull completely off the road and just wait it out. But you can't see. There's no way of knowing where you are. There's no landmarks. You can't see the sun. You certainly can't see the stars at night. You have no idea. And so they're afraid of Cyrus. So they lower the gear. That means they they lowered a sea anchor. And they had multiple anchors on the ship. Now the anchors are not the big famous ones you see in you know the movie Titanic or you know, any of these. They were just basically look like a pickaxe. So imagine a big metal bar with a wooden stick in the middle of it attached to a chain. And that's what they would throw off hoping it would catch and drag and slow them down so they wouldn't just keep being tossed and, and, but obviously didn't work very well. The other thing they would do is they would start lowering their sails, taking them down, because the sails were just picking them up and just tossing them as fast as they could go, as fast as the wind was long. And thus they were being driven along. They were violently storm-tossed and the next day they begin to jettison the cargo. Now that means they're desperate. The owner of the ship probably doesn't have prudential, doesn't have insurance. He is going to eat the loss or there's some arrangement they have because obviously these things happen. So he's starting to say, let's get rid of the cargo, the extra cargo that's not as important, we'll just start you have a suitcase, Ah, you don't need that, it's gone. I don't care if it's your, you know, your family heirlooms in there, they're gone, it's, it's extra weight. Verse 19, the third day, they started throwing the equipment overboard, the ship's tackle with their own hands. And neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, and all hope of our being saved was abandoned. John MacArthur put it this way, Only those who have been in a violent storm at sea can appreciate the terror the passengers and crew must have felt. The towering white-capped seas, the roaring of the wind, the violent rocking of the ship, as first the bow and then the stern rose high in the air, only to plunge quickly down again, the constant motion inducing seasickness making it difficult to stand, let alone walk, the wind-driven salt spray stinging and blinding those exposed on the deck, and worst of all, the looming reality of the awful death of drowning. All these factors combined to unnerve even the most experienced Sailor. And that's where we end our story today. Because you have to come back next week to hear the tale of a fateful trip. <laughs> Let's break. Lord, thank you for our time together and for the opportunity to explore a vivid story. And while we didn't have our opportunity to really look at the application too much today, we don't. We do know that there's a reason this story is here, other than just to terrify us of being a, being at sea. But what these men and women dealt with is is really vivid, and our imaginations are captured and realize that your provision saved them all through the faith of one named Paul in Jesus' name, Amen. So please come back next week. I do have much more to discuss, but isn't that amazingly vivid